0: I think I said when we started this that the chapters in Malachi are all a little bit confusing. Um, Older, um, previous translations didn't always have a chapter 4. They sometimes included it in chapter 3. And this really does follow on the first three verses on what we looked at this morning. And then you have kind of like a conclusion in verses 4 to 6. Verse 1 of chapter 4, as we have it, says, in fact, I'll read from verse 18 of chapter 3. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when i act says the lord of hosts remember the law of my servant moses the statutes and rules that i commanded him at horeb for all israel behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus reads God's word. How do historians classify the end of an era and the dawn of a new one? Sometimes it's when an empire falls and a new one rises. Or maybe there's been a big discovery in science and technology like the Industrial Revolution. Maybe a great leader dies and is replaced with a very different style of leader. Or one takes over from the one before like Trump and his era replacing the Obama era. Or a revolution topples a social structure and ushers in a new one like the fall of the Berlin Wall and that Cold War. The end of Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. The people of God had largely failed to keep his law, and it was very clear they couldn't save themselves. Something new, something different, something never seen before was going to come, but not a something, a someone. But the final message of the Old Testament is just as important today as it was when it was preached by Malachi some 400 years before Christ. This last chapter of the Old Testament answers many of the questions that people still ask. Questions about God's justice. What is God like? What will happen at the end of time? How can we prepare for that day of judgment? Whenever Paul was teaching the church in Thessalonica about the future coming of Christ and the judgment he will render, Paul says, comfort one another with these words comfort one another with these words what can be comforting about contemplating judgment day well for one it'll comfort believers when we see God setting all things straight when we see God's perfect standard of justice and righteousness upheld when we will know like Abraham knew that it is right to trust that the judge of all the earth shall do what is right even as he watched Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed at God's command. Those who have been fairly unfairly treated rather and abused and misrepresented in this world, called mad and foolish and persecuted, they will be openly acknowledged by their Savior as his own special possession whom he died for. Malachi may have seemed like a book that's directed at rebuking unfaithful, half hearted religious people, and that's about it. But we have seen that it's also about God's gracious, encouraging message to a faithful remnant struggling to persevere, but persevering in godliness and faithfulness despite those around them. As we saw this morning, God had not forgotten them. And he promises in this final chapter To lift their spirits to point them away from their present struggles and towards the future restoration of all things things may seem out of control at times some people believe that God created things and then just lets them play out to see what kind of a mess we'll make like throwing wild animals into an overcrowded cage that's squashed just to see the inevitable carnage that ensues Maybe sometimes we buy into this error implicitly when we question how can God allow so many evil things to continue, seemingly without restraint. But John Blanchard wrote things are not out of control. History is not swirling around in chaos. As surely as the world is a moral creation, it will come to a moral conclusion. God is not always a God of immediate justice but he is a God of ultimate justice and that's why this closing message in Malachi about the day of judgment is very much a part of the good news that we delight in as Christians but very bad news if you reject it and the bad news continues on from the last verse of chapter 3 verse 18 and it's about this day of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And scripture couldn't be clearer about this day. God is coming to judge. Verses one to three, as I said, are part of the previous passage, and they close this sixth and final dispute between God and Israel. And there's three things, as you see them, to notice about this day of distinction. The first is it's fixed. Verse one, behold, this is God's version of sit up and listen behold to emphasize the certainty of what God's promising he repeats the day is coming and he says the day that is coming and verse three the day when I act no ifs buts or maybe this day is coming for sure is this the only place that God warned humanity of this day or does he talk about it somewhere else Well, this day of the Lord is alluded to or spoken of directly literally hundreds of times in Scripture, and not just the Old Testament. No one spoke about Judgment Day more than our Lord Jesus himself, and that makes perfect sense because he alone has the authority to judge on that day when he returns. The very first Psalm says the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So it's fixed. Secondly, it's final. All the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. It will leave them neither root nor branch. I was reading recently of some so-called progressive prosecutors in the States. And they've recently declared 15 crimes that they believe should be dismissed without trial. These include drug possession with the intent to distribute, shoplifting and malicious destruction of property. Now, this helps reduce crime numbers and prison occupation, which looks nice on official state reports. But it's a complete denial of actual justice. And it's a dereliction of a judge's duty. Many people do escape justice in this life, but no one will escape justice when God sits at his bench of justice. He will judge every sin that's not been repented of, and there will be no appeals. So it's final. And thirdly, it is fearful. This week, our own government held the first artificial intelligence safety summit, and many in the media dubbed it the doom summit. Many accused Rishi Sunak of fear-mongering and end-of-the-world type scenario where the robots will take control from the humans that built them, and who knows what will happen. But I like the way that Elon Musk speaks in such a straightforward manner. He was asked about this, and he told ITV that a bit of fear is probably wise. And in his typical plain language, he said, The very worst could be extremely bad, but I think the probability of extremely bad is low. There are real risks with AI, obviously, but neither AI, nor the sun, nor a nuclear weapon will end the world. God will, according to 2 Peter 3.10, he'll do so with fire. But some domesticate God, and they say people should never think of God as scary. We should play that down a little bit more well no they shouldn't think of him as scary they should think of him according to scripture as terrifying if they have only hatred for him and his son for someone who rejects his son's free gift of salvation through his shed blood the bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god Malachi described this coming day in the present tense like a burning oven even now as if the oven is preheating to some unimaginable temperature. This kind of oven that he speaks of would have been like a clay oven. It would have been hotter than an open fire as it would have kept all the heat in. God says that the wicked will be reduced to stubble or chaff both of which burn very easily and that's the point. Nothing left. How could anyone preach this? With sorrow in my heart for anyone who hears these words and ignores them, with a humble acknowledgement that I deserved this same judgment for my sins, and with daily gratitude that my perfect Savior Jesus took this wrath of God upon his own body so that I could go free and you could go free by his astounding grace. We can't skirt over this topic. It's too important. It's too fixed, final, and fearful. But in verses two and three, our minds are lifted because God is committed to the faithful. Yes, Malachi turns up the heat at the end of the Old Testament. Apart from all the hot air that the people have been speaking in Malachi, Malachi mentions the heat of fire that purifies in chapter three, the heat of fire that consumes in Christ's judgment here in verse one, but now it's the heat of the son of righteousness in verse two. This heat will bring healing and restoration to all of Christ's followers when he returns for us to make all things new. One commentator writes, for those who feared the Lord, this coming day would bring a different kind of heat. The gentle warming presence of the rising sun on a spring morning. If you've been convalescing, you appreciate that almost healing effect of the sun when you get out into the sun after maybe a long night feeling ill. Or maybe if you've been on holiday somewhere in Greece perhaps recently and you were sick for the day, and you woke up to feel the healing rays of the Greek sun on your body, you can appreciate this delightful sense of warmth and the joy that this healing illustrates. The sun of righteousness is a delightful image, and it's often taken as a metaphor for Jesus, and it's definitely tied to his comings. There are a couple of other texts that clarify what Malachi is referring to in verse 2 in this sun of righteousness. Righteousness. In the Psalms, we read, He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Isaiah 58, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The rising of the sun of righteousness will be the dawning of a new day, the day when God Comes to finally fulfill every single promise to his faithful people, the day when the evil are destroyed and the righteous are saved forevermore. But how could it be possible for any one of us to be considered righteous, given the dire warning of verse 1? That's why we need the Son of Righteousness, S O M. If we want to be able to stand on God's coming day of judgment and to rejoice with the healing that comes from faith in Christ, we need a righteousness from outside of ourselves. What Bible teachers call an alien righteousness because it's not internal, it's external. It's not earthly. It doesn't originate with us. It is a righteousness all of Christ and it can only be ours through faith in him. Knowing that God's righteousness is credited to us produces the the deep joy that's illustrated again in verse 2 in the second half in ways infinitely superior to the time-limited sun in our solar system. The Son of God gives light and warmth and healing and life. And then Malachi goes on in verse 2 to paint a lovely picture of what we will be like when the sun returns on the last day the new living translation gives the sense better and you will go free leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture this was a familiar sight in Israel's agricultural society and the imagery would have been well received but for city folk like ourselves perhaps it might need some fleshing out the images of young bull calves who were always joyful when they were led out into the fields and pastures, and they would run about and jump and skip, and this would strengthen their muscles. These calves were healthy, strong, happy, and well fed by their owner, as the believer shall be on the day that Christ is revealed to us. And when this day comes, it will not be the sun in our solar system that gives God's people light. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. John picks up on this same theme in Revelation. And in a few weeks, we'll be starting to think about the nativity narrative. And there, Zechariah prophesied that because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. This is the light of the world who came and brought light to our dark world by bringing hope and peace and joy and love. And these are all things that are made available to anyone who believes in him for salvation. And if that describes you, then you'll rejoice in the day when the son of righteousness rises and the the people of God from every tribe, tongue and nation, from every era of history will enter this everlasting kingdom of God together, healed of all suffering and the evil that caused it. And then in verse three, we see that there'll be a complete overthrow of God's enemies. We won't trample down our enemies in some kind of battle of vengeance vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. It says that the God-hating population will already be stubble without root or branch, and so they're already under the feet of God's people. God is emphasizing again, it is the day when he acts. This is his day, and that should keep us from retaliation, should keep our focus in prayer on praying for the wicked to repent, not perish, For so long, it has seemed that the enemies of God have been winning the battle for hearts and minds in our world. All throughout church history, people have questioned, does God really see? Will he really act? Well, the 17th century British preacher Thomas Watson said, as long as there is eternity, God has enough time to reckon with his enemies. God is coming to judge, and there's no doubt about that. But Contrary to what some people think, God does not delight in destroying the wicked. God is not glad that the majority despise his glory and reject his sinless son as their king. But despite the continual wickedness of humanity, God is patient, and he has delayed his final judgment. He is committed to the faithful. And in verses 4 to 6, in this little conclusion to Malachi, God is calling us, as he called them, to remember and return. Remember the law, he says. The best kind of exam, in my opinion, is the open book exam. When you're allowed to bring your books to the test, and you're literally allowed to bring the answers with you. Now, those exams were meant to teach students how to use the information on the page, and to apply that information in a, in a more thoughtful and practical way. Some exams can be passed by simply memorizing the information in a textbook, but the open book exam usually wants you to interpret the text and to apply it to your specific question and context. Israel's been badly feeling this open book test. God doesn't need to rewrite the textbook for them, at the end of this prophecy, he simply points them back to the book of the covenant and tells them, remember it. But in scripture, remembering always means more than mental recall. It means response too. One of Moses' favorite words was remember. This is used so many times in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book written to call the people to remember and keep God's law at the dawn of a new era the people are about to enter the promised land and as malachi mentions moses here it would also remind them that the god of moses the god of the exodus deliverance is the same god who promises to deliver them again and to bring them into a place of eternal blessing they will tread down the wicked like their forefathers did before entering the promised land And so by alluding to the giving of the law at Mount Horeb, or also known as Mount Sinai, God is reminding the people of the day when he first set them apart as a special possession, a holy people to serve God and to receive blessings from his hand. And so we can think of this as the bridge back to the start of Israel's history with Moses being mentioned. And next comes a bridge forward, a bridge to the New Testament and also to the end of history. Verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. If Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, those ministers of God who called the people to live by the law and to repent when they feel to law and prophets is the Jewish way of summarizing all of scripture as they had it. And back in chapter three, verse one, God promised to send a messenger. And we know that John the Baptist was definitely the one being promised. So is he the the fulfillment of verse five here as well? At least in part, yes. After seeing Jesus with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, The disciples were confused and you may remember they asked Jesus a question because the Jewish scribes had taught Elijah must come before the Messiah. Now they've just seen Elijah with the Messiah but not before Jesus came and their expected restoration of Israel's kingdom hadn't come either and they're confused. So Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, Matthew seventeen ten to 13. So Elijah had come, John the Baptist, and Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Who the last Elijah will be divides opinion. The important point for us in Malachi is... John the Baptist was a type of Elijah because he too fearlessly preached repentance. He warned the people of Israel of God's judgment for breaking the covenant. And like Elijah, he prayed to God to turn the people's hearts back to him in a generation where hardly any were faithful. God kept his promise. He sent another messenger to warn the people to repent and return. And God continues to send his messengers to every nation on the globe as he sends us to warn and to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. And so every preacher is a kind of messenger of God, but so are all faithful witnessing disciples. The last verse says that he, that is, this Elijah, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Because the people rejected the first messenger, John the Baptist, and the Messiah that he prepared them for, the entirety of this prophecy was not fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. The hearts of fathers and their children were not fully united. Family division remained, as Jesus said it had. But one day, when all unbelievers are judged and only the family of God remains, there will be a complete unity in all of human relationships. As Christians, we already know that when God turns our hearts to him, our relationship with him is restored vertically, but it also impacts our horizontal human relationships. God's final warning to Israel in the Old Testament is stark. He says, if you do not repent and return to me in faith, you will permanently forfeit blessing. He talks about a decree of utter destruction. God had previously called Edom, Israel's enemies, the land he devoted to destruction. But here God's promising, threatening, that no matter what religious or ethnic privileges these faithless people held on to, they would join Edom's curse if they didn't return to him. At the end of Halloween night, the costumes come off. Unfortunately, a lot of the macabre decorations in our area are still up despite it being over, but the day of distinction will be the day when God takes people's disguises off. There will be no pretending before God on that day. Now people may be able to fool their churches, even their leaders, but not on that day, because God says the faithful will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus said on that day, many will come to me and and tell me how much they did for my name. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. But this will be the day when God vindicates his righteousness definitely. And no more will anyone be able to accuse God of overlooking evil. So, God instructs his people both to look back and to look forward. Look back to his covenant with them, remember his faithfulness to them, and repent, and look forward to the future day of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And so, as the Old Testament began with God's perfect creation in Genesis and mankind in perfect harmony with God, The Old Testament ends with a curse for those who remain in the the same sin that their father Adam fell into. The last word of the Old Testament is a word that means curse. The last chapter of the New Testament promises no more curse for God's servant, but maybe it doesn't seem fitting. We like a happy ending and the Old Testament ends with a word that means curse or destruction. Well, the Hebrew and Greek Bibles actually swap the last two verses because they didn't like that either. And they wanted at the end with a blessing. But I think they're missing a subtle yet significant blessing implied in verse six. And maybe the most important word in that verse is that little word, lest or unless. Because it implies that God has made a way to avoid this curse for sin. And you might remember that Jesus' first sermon was full of this word, blessing, for those in his kingdom. And so there is one way to escape the curse through faith in the Son of God who drank every ounce of the cup of God's curse upon sin. He became a a curse to guarantee our blessing. And God has already upheld his justice because he has dealt with our sin completely for trusting in him. Why did Jesus have to die? According to Romans 3, to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God could not, God will not overlook sin. That would demean his glory. John Piper says, but he didn't. He says, God saw his glory being despised by sinners. He saw his worth belittled and his name dishonored by our sins. And rather than vindicating the worth of his glory by slaying his people, he vindicated his glory by slaying his son. On what day did it most seem like it was vain to serve God, as Malachi's audience said. Well, What about the day when the disciples watched him die, apparently helpless on a cross? And on what day did it seem most like the arrogant were blessed? That evildoers prospered, that God's justice was avoided. What about that day when those evildoers crucified the son of God himself when they laughed and spat upon his blood-covered face and then they returned home in relative comfort as he hanged there for them but God is committed to restoration and that's the last thing I want to say as we close this last chapter of the Old Testament the need for a Messiah could not be more obvious Israel has taken God's covenant love for granted they haven't responded with the kind of sacrificial, devoted love that God deserves. They failed to magnify God's name among the nations, which was their calling. We're told that their worship was woeful, their priests were wicked, their marriages were disloyal, their offerings were meager. They failed to uphold justice in society and they distrusted God to be just and caring. This is a people that needs atonement for their sins. They need someone to take the wrath that they were heaping up upon himself and to bear it away forever. They needed a deliverer. They needed the Christ. Marshall Segal says, the wooden beams outside Jerusalem frame the wondrous marriage between justice and mercy. Through the cross, God is both just and justifier, both just and merciful. On that dark and bloody hill, the terrifying justice of God became a servant of mercy for all who would believe. In Christ, justice is no longer a threat, but a refuge. So Malachi is a book about God's love for his people who don't love him properly. It's about the heart of worship, which must be worship from the heart. It's about heeding God's warnings to repent and be restored. It's about an unchanging God so faithful that even when we are unfaithful in our worship, our personal relationships, our devotion, he promises to bless us when we come in humble repentance and fear. Malachi is about the God who knew none of us were capable of keeping his law And so he sent his son to do that for us. He sent his own son, not just to keep the law, but to preach a message of grace and forgiveness made available through his life-giving death on the cross. Malachi is about the God whose name is already great beyond the borders of Israel and will be feared among the nations. Malachi is about the God who loved you and still loves you. But I finish with a similarly sobering conclusion as this prophecy does. Because the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. So if you're not trusting in Christ, you need to turn to God for forgiveness for your sins. Trust his son for salvation, lest he come in wrath and you spend eternity apart from him. You don't need to do that because Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has made a way to come to Him through faith. Amen. Amen. We'll close by.